Well, good evening to all of you. I'm sure glad to be with you and glad you're here to worship together. I think if we spend our evenings uh, praying like we've just prayed and singing these songs, that'd be, uh, boy, what a, a wonderful evening that would be. I really appreciate uh, the invitation to be with you you all. Kim and I have enjoyed our time here. Uh, Josh was with us in June, the second week in June, in the meeting in Newcastle, Indiana, where we live, and uh, he stayed with us, and we had a good time, and uh, you can just imagine the kind of work he did while he was preaching here. And it wasn't too long before that, Danny was up there in Newcastle Way, and uh, we really enjoyed having him up here too, and get to be with both of those good men and their families here. We're staying with Dan and Kathy. Uh, it's just a great privilege and blessing. We're really enjoying ourselves, and thank you for um, making us feel so comfortable We've really enjoyed being with many of you meals and uh, other occasions outside of our assemblies, and uh, that's a, a special thing. You've, you've gone an extra mile to take care of us and help us, and we really appreciate it. Uh, as uh, Josh mentioned this, uh, in the announcements, we're walking our way through a study of the elders in every church is the theme of talking about elders and trying to be practical, scriptural and practical in all of that. And tonight I want to talk about uh, a subject that probably came first in my thinking about this subject, is where, where do elders come from? And I know that this church, uh, we, we prayed for that, and I think this was not the first time, I know it's not, the first time we've prayed for this church in regard to uh, you're all wanting elders and you're praying that God would open such a door um, so from the standpoint of a church without elders, where, where do elders come from? And then, as you've heard me say before, when there are elders in place, uh, the next question is, where do elders come from? Because you'd be working to develop elders in that next generation. So I want to try to talk about that some tonight and invite your, your study and your, your thoughtful uh, conversation about this subject with me afterward. I really would enjoy that. You'll make... You'll make my effort to preach on this subject better. Uh, we've, we've acknowledged often that it is God's um, plan, as he revealed it in the New Testament, for a plurality of qualified men to work together with a specific responsibility of shepherding the congregation of which they are a part. That's God's plan. These men are called shepherds or pastors or presbyters or bishops. And then, of course, you probably hear me most refer to them as elders. And each of those terms, while it describes the same person, the same kind of work, it, it, those different words, those different terms, look at these men and their work in slightly different ways. Some of them emphasize that these must be men of maturity. They must be men who possess wisdom. They, they come to the task of shepherding with some experience, and they have a sense of what it means to oversee, to feed, and to protect the people of God for everyone's spiritual welfare. Preachers are taught in the New Testament to teach about this subject and to appoint elders in churches where they do not now exist. Titus and Timothy uh, both 
record Paul's instructions about that. And I'm going to be reading just from verse 5 of Titus chapter 1, where Paul writes, For this reason I left you in Crete, that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. So part of Titus's work in appointing elders in every city is surely to teach about the qualifications and about the work that, that is behind all of this. And, and then to make sure that they guide and help a church to do the very appointing work that allows these men to begin effectively working in a local congregation. So elderships must be at least two men. One man cannot biblically, scripturally serve as a shepherd in a local church. There must be at least two. But there can be many more than two. As many men who are qualified, or as many men who are qualified, as the church deems necessary and useful to do the shepherding work that a local congregation requires. Maybe there's five, maybe there's ten, twelve, or more, uh, depending on the size of the congregation and the, the men who are qualified. But it is at least my experience that many times the, the eldership in a local congregation is fragile. And I mean fragile, uh, not in the sense of their convictions and their, their, their resolve to do the work, but fragile in the number of men that constitute that eldership, that many times there are two. And it is that way in Newcastle, Indiana, where I am and where I serve as an elder. There are two of us. And we as a congregation, and we are, as an eldership, are very aware that that is a fragile situation. These men, by definition, are to be older men. And I, I acknowledge that uh, that is somewhat reluctantly, I, just to be honest with you, that that is where I am. Uh, and, but I serve with a man who is 83 years old. And for either of us, either of us, we acknowledge that the, there is a possibility of succumbing to some kind of debilitating illness that affects our mind or our ability to do this work or to death itself. And that doing so in such a fragile two-person arrangement would result in the dissolving of the eldership and to put the church in Newcastle or church where wherever that fragile relationship works, in a situation of not having shepherds. And no one, no one in the church in Newcastle, Indiana would want that. And I suspect that I, I say what any church, and, and I've, I've learned since coming here, of your all's experience, and maybe not too many years ago, your experience having elders and now not having elders. And so I, I think I'm, I'm, I'm saying what you all have experienced as well. Uh, you, you don't want to be without elders, and and so I'm I'm, I'm acknowledging the, the fragile nature of this. But it, but it's not just that something might happen to the two men who serve as elders. The same thing might happen to their wives, and make it necessary for them to resign, or uh, in other ways. And I ask you to kind of in your mind think through the qualifications. In other ways, these men might not continue to be qualified to serve as elders. And one of them must 
then necessarily resign and result in the eldership being dissolved. Jobs can change and families have to move. Uh, if one of the elders is a preacher, and uh, my stomach tightened up just as soon as I said that sentence. <clears throat> uh, I am a preacher and I serve as an elder. And that is a, uh, that presents some challenges because sometimes it might be necessary for the preacher to move. The congregation may wish for a change. The, the, the preacher may feel it necessary to go and work in some other way, in some other place uh, that may be fruitful. There may be a calling in that direction. And that, that decision is not nearly as easy to make as it would be if there were not just two men serving as an elder. So there are a number of things that could happen to make the, an eldership, uh, to dissolve that eldership. And so I think it is wise, both for a church who does not have elders, not, in, not just wise, but it's necessary for a church that does not have elders, to think, okay, how do, how do you get elders? Where do they come from? But it is also important for a church that does have elders to continue to think about that and to work on that so that elders continue to exist in that congregation or the existing eldership to be more solid, made up of more and more qualified men who are, who are willing and ready to do this work. So where do elders come from? Well, um, they do not come from the largest family that makes up a local congregation. They do not come because dad was an elder or grandpa was an elder. And so it just now is my turn. That's not how elders, that, that's not how you get elders in a local church. Elders are not promoted. You've heard me say in a number of ways, try to say, that if, if any of us are inclined to think that an elder represents a high position of rank spiritually, that that is bringing in to the spiritual world carnal thinking. And, and Jesus would have none of that. We are all servants using the gifts that God has given to us with all of our heart, prayerfully and diligently, and God opens doors for us to serve in various ways. And so, um, for someone to think, well, then you start out by being a regular member, and then you get promoted to, do, to a deacon. And then if you're a deacon long enough, then maybe you get promoted to be an elder. And I just hate, it, it was so hard for me to say what I just said. It's just carnal and unscriptural altogether. But I think sometimes that's how people look at an eldership, and that's how they imagine elders to come. And I want to say that's not right. That's not biblical. That's not how a church gets elders. Nor do elders come from enthusiastic volunteers. I mean, these guys, bless their hearts, they are, they are full of energy and faith and zeal. 
And where there is a need, they might be the first ones to put their hand in the air. So they, are, they, they spontaneously volunteer to do what is needed. You need somebody to teach a class, I'll do it. You need somebody to mow the grass, I'll do it. Somebody needs to go visit somebody, I'll do it. And, and they, they are just of that nature. And they are a help and a blessing to the Lord's people in a lot of ways. But that's not, the, that's not how you get elders. That's not, that's not how they come from, from people who are sort of, uh, spontaneous enthusiasts. Who are inclined to volunteer wherever a need might arise. The truth is, that as we looked at these qualifications, as we, and as a church continues to look at them, you just cannot escape the fact that these qualifications require prior attention. And that when it comes time, for appointing elders in a local church, the men appointed are not a surprise to anybody in that congregation. Everybody saw it coming. That, that's who these men are. You, you see them coming years ahead. You watch them how, they, how they're training their children. They're not just bringing them to church. They're bringing them to the Lord. They're teaching them to know God, to love Jesus, to understand what this is all about. You watch their marriage, and they, 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 they take care of each other. And this is real, and it's deep, it's personal, it's, it's oriented toward God. They care about people. They, they expend themselves financially and time and energy for other people without giving it a second thought because they're trying to walk in the footsteps of Jesus. And they're not doing it so that they might one day serve as an elder. They're doing it because that's what a disciple is. And they've got it. They understand that. And husband and wife and children are committed to that. And it doesn't have anything to do with the rest of the people in the congregation either. They might be out there all by themselves and that's who they're going to be because they're Christians and they're serving the Lord. Those kind of people are going to be elders. They're, they, they, you can see them coming. You can see them coming. And so what I want to say is that where, where the answer to the question, where do elders come from? The answer is you grow them. You grow them. Really. If we change the question just a little bit and say, where do deacons come from? Guess what? It's the same answer. You grow them. Where do you get good Bible class teachers? Where do you get a good song leader? It's the same. You, you grow them. And if it, if it comes some other way, if we try to short circuit the plan, you know, and then the congregation needs elders, and so you flip a light switch, and all of a sudden a couple of guys are appearing before you volunteering to serve as elders. They come the wrong way. You grow these men. And I want to talk a little bit more about what that's involved, what's involved in all of that. There are some things I want to say about this, uh, the qualifications and the work that requires some prior attention. In order for a man to serve as an elder, he's going to have to know how to handle opposing opinions. That's sure going to arise in a local congregation. He's going to have to know how to handle different personalities. He's going to have to handle frustration and provocation 
And he's going to have to know how to handle controversy. And you don't wake up one day and have that all figured out. You grow as in, in your faith and you grow in your maturity through mistakes, through a lot of learning, through a lot of prayer, through a whole lot of repenting. You grow to be closer to Christ in these vital ways. It requires prior attention. Your reputation, both inside and outside the church. Uh, by, I mean, how do you develop a reputation? It takes time. I mean, I know you can lose it just like that. You've got to be so very careful. But developing a reputation, and that part of the qualifications requires some time. And your children. Converting your children and... Uh, Handling your family in an honorable way so that when people see how you manage your family, they say, wow, that, I, that's the way God wants it done. And, and it is those kinds of men who show their ability to manage their family well, who give confidence to the church that these same men can oversee us and guide us to heaven because I see well he's doing it with his family. His temperament, his skill as a teacher. That there, there is a life that is obviously devoted to the Lord, that is devoted to His Word, and to learning how to teach it in the best way, because there is this heartfelt, deep conviction that the greatest need that this world has is for a knowledge of God. The greatest need that my children have is for a knowledge of God. And that conviction drives this man to try to be a better teacher, try to be a better example as he tries to influence people to go to heaven. So I'm simply saying you, you, you can't flip a switch and have that. And so you've got to grow these guys. These, these, these fellows have to grow. It's going to take time. I want to read a passage that you've heard me talk about a couple or maybe almost every lesson, maybe. It's Philippians chapter 3. And I know the passage is familiar to many of you. Uh, but Philippians chapter 3 lets us make a point that, that though these men are obviously growing and developing, these qualifications do not call for a perfect man. But they do call for a man, or for, for men, obviously, plurality of elders, who have shown themselves to be serious and able in the work of serving the Lord, serving other people, and helping other people do the same. I, I've not said enough about Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 and 12. We read this passage on the, in the very first lesson where Christ gives gifts to men, apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, 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 and teachers. And he gave those gifts for the equipping of saints for the work of service. And so one of the things that an, that an elder, that a pastor m- must be doing is thinking, how can I equip my brothers and my sisters for the work of service? God wants them to serve. God wants me to serve, but God wants them to serve. And he's, and he's called upon me to help people serve. So how can I do that? 
And so this work, listen to what Philippians chapter 3 has to say. I'm going to read from verse 12 down to verse 14. As Paul reflects now as a mature man near the end of his life, as he reflects upon his life and work as an apostle. He says, not that I have already obtained it. And that is, in the context, he has not received all that he set out to receive in Christ yet. All that's involved in the blessings of Christ and all that being in Christ takes you to. Paul's not there yet. He's not received those things. Not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect. Here it comes. But I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. This pinnacle of spiritual development that we might imagine that we're going to reach in our lives and then how we finally arrived. And those arrived men are the guys that will appoint to serve as elders in a local church. That is the wrong way of thinking and will result in finding a way to disqualify everyone. So I just want to say again that these men are a work in progress. They're growing and they're developing in all these ways. And they are men who possess the qualities required to be an elder. They possess these qualifications. And these men are still pressing on, not having reached the pinnacle of spiritual development, which will take place in heaven. They'll be pressing on until they take their last breath. And so we need, we need to remember that about them and about their development. So I've said that elders need to grow, look at some of the qualifications that, that certainly challenge us and call upon us to recognize that's what God sees. That's how God sees these qualifications. And and may He help us to see them and handle them in the same way He does, the same mindset He has. Let me add two other things to this. One of these one of the things I want to say, and I don't know the right words to use to say this, but but the men who are going to serve as elders are men who learn to think congregationally. And I know that needs a bit of explanation. They learn to think congregationally. And not all Christians do that. Let me give you an example. Okay, Christian number one. Uh, he is a fine and godly man. He is a man of considerable ability and knowledge of the Scriptures. But he doesn't often think beyond himself or those who are closest to him. And I don't mean that as a criticism. I don't, I'm not suggesting a flaw in his spiritual development. I'm just simply saying that is kind of how he operates. And, and you can hear him sometime in Bible class. And, and you can, if you're listening, you can, you can hear this in his comments. He makes comments about the Bible, and he may not first 
think about the people who are going to hear his comments. He may not always be careful about what he says. What he says is right. No argument about that. But he might not often think about how you say what's right in view of the people there. Now, I don't know if I've described this adequately enough, but I've described, I, am, I have already described people that I know. I, I know people like this. And they're not thinking congregationally. They're not thinking about other people when they say what they say. And they don't feel a particular responsibility to visitors that come in, to the autumns of a congregation, the, the young lady who was restored Sunday morning. There are people who don't particularly feel a responsibility to her. They'll not be calling her, praying for her, asking her to go to a meal. They'll not be inviting them, her into their home. They just don't think about things like that. They don't just, where they're glad for autumn and they're glad for visitors and they're glad for new converts. They're happy for that, but they, you know, that their circle doesn't reach to include people like that. They don't think congregationally. Okay. Think about another man. This is my example number two, who sits in a Bible class and a controversial subject comes up and he doesn't want to stir up trouble, but he wants to comment on the passage and he thinks about the people in the audience before he talks and he wants to make sure that what he says is helpful, is edifying. This man's thinking congregationally. This man may be one of the first, in, he'd, he'd yet stand in line to talk to Autumn, but he'd be one of the first to do so. He'd, he'd try to get up there as quick as he could. And he and his wife would be wanting to take her out to lunch and come on over to our house. Can we study together? Can we pray together? Or we want you to know we're going to be praying for you every night. I mean, and, and, and he'd be, these, these men would run to visit, to welcome visitors who come and extend the same kind of hospitality to new converts. They're thinking congregationally. The thing beyond themselves, beyond their family and their, their circle of friends, it may be that circle may be their family, or it may be some people who are about their same age and they have the same interests, and they sort of gravitate toward each other. You, you know how it is. I'm, I'm assuming it happens here. It happens in Newcastle. And then that's understandable. I, that's under, understandable. But whatever else you might want to say about that, what I've got to say about that, is somebody who's going to shepherd a flock has got to think congregationally. You're not shepherding your family. You're not not, uh, occupying some appointed, needed position. And so the doctor is in or the doctor is out. You're, you're, You're taking care of the souls of people and you're going to expend your time and your energy and your finances. But that's fine. You've learned, you've been a servant all, for a long, long time now. And this is just another way to serve. So, I, I, I want to say this, that, that an elder must be someone who thinks congregationally. And for those, I, I'm talking to some young families. I see them. I see you. I see some young people. You know, some very young people. I, 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 now's the time. Husbands and wives, talk about this. Talk with your children about this. Teach your children how to welcome children who come here. Wow, I've seen that happen. So very impressive. Young little young fellow will come up to 
children who come in there and walk up to them and say, Hi, my name is Billy. Can I show you where my Bible class is? Or will you want to sit with us? Thank you for coming. Trained by mom and dad, you know, what they're training the child to do is to think beyond themselves. Okay, those are the kinds of things that right now, talk to your, pray, pray about these things and work on them as a family. And, and, and begin thinking beyond yourselves and then where that might take you as a family. Maybe it, maybe an elder in a congregation is never a part of what's ahead for you. But you're, you're preparing yourself and your family for service in some remarkable ways. The second thing that I, I want to say about this matter of elders growing, you, you grow elders, is that elders have to work together. And I take you now beyond the closed doors. I take you into an elders meeting where nobody else usually is. And two, the uh, sometimes hard and painful and controversial things that you just got to work through. And if you're going to serve as an elder, you're going to have to be able to work with people. You're going to have to be able to work with people. I really think that the qualifications, when you, when you put especially some of them together, that's exactly what they call for. Elders are, are, elders are going to have to be men who listen until they understand what someone else is trying to say. And they understand it so well that they could say it back to that person and that person can say, that's exactly what I meant to say. You've got to listen that well. You've got, to, you've got to try to communicate, not emotionally, but you've got to communicate accurately and honestly. An eldership must work together peacefully with diverse personalities, diverse ages, diverse opinions, diverse backgrounds, and that's not easy. And so the word that often comes up is, well, what's it going to do to the chemistry of an eldership? And that, that word chemistry is a word that I've, I've heard used a lot. And I was at first skeptical about that because my reaction was chemistry. Where is that in the qualifications? That First Timothy 3 or Titus chapter 1? We're, we're just saying about chemistry. Until hmm. I was an elder. And, and I saw what... That means, and I understand what that's involved. It is right for an eldership to be concerned about the ability of another elder coming on board or with the other men that they're going to be working with, that we can work together well. That, 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 that God will be honored behind those closed doors. Because while a congregation might not ever see or hear what happens, God will. And that eldership must work together through all these differences and in all these tense situations. They must work together in such a way that the God who is in that room is pleased with what he sees and what he hears. And so there's no room for someone to be secretly self-willed. 
or secretly stubborn, or cranky, or cantankerous. In fact, there must be a pledge by every man in that closed room to practice what Romans chapter 12 verse 18 says, For as much as it depends upon me, I'm going to live at peace with all men. And so however somebody might treat me, that has no bearing on how I'm going to treat them. None whatsoever. Because as much as it depends upon me, I'm going to live at peace with all men. What I put on the table, what I bring to the discussion, what I bring to this controversial matter, it will promote peace. May God help that this elder will always do that. It's that kind of resolve and that kind of thinking that promotes the chemistry in an eldership that allows it to work well and in that private room, God to be pleased with what He sees and hears. So obviously, 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 elders don't just appear as volunteers who step forward when a congregation needs elders. Those aren't, that's not how it happens. One does not volunteer for duty. Elders are grown. Elders are not a surprise. You see them coming years ahead of time. They have already shown what they are made of. They have already shown their faith. They've already shown their mind to serve. They've already shown a track record of growing. They have a reputation within and without the church that is honorable. They live as examples that influence people in the right way. They've been showing a shepherd's heart for a long time before a congregation asks them to consider shepherding that flock among which they are a part. I want you to go to Acts chapter 14 with me. Turn to Acts chapter 14. And let's just kind of talk about an issue head on here. Acts chapter 14 is uh, near the end of Paul's first uh, missionary journey. And as best I can tell, it was a journey that lasted uh, somewhere between two and four years and covered 1,208 miles. And near the end of that journey, uh, verse uh, I'm in Acts chapter 14, beginning with verse number 19, um, uh, he went from Antioch to Iconium to Lystra and to Derbe. And then from Derbe to Lystra to Iconium and to Antioch. So you know, I know you needed the map to follow that, but it's a little loop. One city, two cities, three cities, Four cities. And then he went back. Four, three, two, one. And then on his way to the end of the first missionary journey. Now I don't know how long that little loop lasted. And maybe it lasted a year, two years. I don't know. Maybe less. I haven't been able to discern that. But I want you to listen to what happened. And I want you to pay particular attention to verse 23. Because in verse 23 it says, And when they had appointed elders for them in every church... They appointed elders in every church on their return journey, on their, on their coming back through that loop. And I want you to imagine, as you hear me read this, how long, how long have these people been Christians? And how was it that they could appoint elders in every church? Now that we've talked about the work of elders, now that we've talked about the qualification of elders, 
Now that we've talked about how a church is to treat elders, and now you've heard me say you grow these men, and there's no other way to go about it. Okay, how do you put all that together in such a way that verse 23 happens? Okay, that's what I want to try to hit head on. So follow in your Bibles as we look at verse number 19, and we'll read down to the end of verse 23. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having won over the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing him to be dead. This happened in Lystra. But while the disciples stood around him, he got up and entered the city. The next day, he went away with Barnabas to Derbe. After they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra. They returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. When they had appointed elders for them in every church, having prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Um, Isn't it amazing to imagine what faith in Christ looked like in the life of the Apostle Paul? He uh, heard these angry Jews coming from uh, Antioch and Iconium. And they stirred up a crowd, and they dragged Paul out of the city, and they stoned him until they thought he was dead. And then when he got up, he went right back into that city. I can't imagine what he must have looked like. Some have imagined that Paul's eyesight was a problem later on in his life, and I've wondered if maybe it came from an occasion something like this. And then after a short time, he continued his journey to to the city of Derbe, and, and preached the gospel there uh, to Lystra and to, uh, uh, to I'm sorry, to, uh, to Derby and preached the gospel there. And then he, then he decided to return and he went back to Lystra where he'd been stoned to death and he was, and he was encouraging the, the disciples and his message was, through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And I, I tried to think what Paul's face must have looked like. Were the scars still there? Was he still bruised? Were, were his eyes damaged? And, and hearing coming from someone like that the words, through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Don't let anything stop you. It's, it, it's worth it. Through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Okay. And then, having said that, he continued on his journey and he was appointing elders for them in every city. Where did these elders come from? Or how did they come about? Maybe there was, at least by this story, if we, if we stretch, maybe a year or two that we would give to this loop. Maybe, maybe not even that long. And during that, during that time, he was teaching the gospel and converting people to Christ. How were men qualified to serve as elders? Well, perhaps some of them were new Christians and older, 
older, elderly in view, maybe that was a relative term. And in view of some of the younger Christians, they were older. I'm not real comfortable with that possibility, but perhaps that would be an explanation. And, And in a relative sense, they were not new converts. Maybe many of them were Jews who became Christians. And that certainly was the biblical record. They went to synagogues, they taught Jews, and many of them became Christians. And and a Jewish, a diligent, faithful Jewish person would have been careful to raise his children in the Lord. Deuteronomy chapter uh, chapter six um, would show the kind of thing that's going on in a in a faithful Jewish home. And so maybe these people already had been working with their children and working with their marriage. And, and that their family and their devotion to the Lord, their knowledge of the Lord, was already at a very mature level when they learned of Christ and that He was the Messiah, anticipated by the Old Testament, and they became Christians. So maybe it was that, that background of Judaism that allowed them, in, a, in what seems to us a, a relatively short period of time, to become, become uh, qualified to serve as elders. I think perhaps more likely... In uh, Acts chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, on the day of Pentecost, there were people from the very region where Paul was in Acts chapter 14, and these people were in the city of Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost, when on that first day there were 3,000 people who turned from darkness to light and who were added by the saving Jesus to his spiritual Body, this group of saved people called the church. There were 3,000 people. And some of them might very well have come from these cities of Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, and Derbe in the regions of Asia, Phrygia, and Pamphylia. Those, those places named in Acts chapter 2. If that be the case, and these people taking the gospel back to their home, teaching and converting others, there were, when Paul came to this region in Acts chapter 14, there very well could have been people who have been Christians for 10, 11 years, or or maybe more. And they were not just converted, the the first Christians were, were not those converted on this first missionary journey, but he met people who had been Christians for quite a long time. And from among those Christians then, and maybe those Jewish Christians, uh, then there would be men well qualified to serve as elders. So my point is, Acts chapter 14, verses 19 through 23, um, presents not a different or a challenging scenario, but it's the same thing. Elders have to be grown. And that was it was no different here. And I've tried to offer some possible explanations for the background of what's said in verse 23 that might first seem to be an abrupt and quick uh, appointment of relatively new Christians. And I, and I, I suggest that that might not be as it might first appear to us for the reasons that I've tried to suggest here. So I want to say tonight that elders come from people who are growing. They come from a congregation that's growing. Elders will come here when men like Josh McKibben are diligent to preach 
the whole counsel of God. And he does it well. He does it prayerfully. He does it seriously. Elders will come from this congregation when their Bible classes are planned. And the people who teach the Bible classes, from the adults all the way down to the youngest, teach those classes very seriously, very prayerfully. Nobody's goofing around. Nobody's taking this lightly. These are the words of life. And when a congregation has a teaching program like that, that, that helps spiritual growth, you are, you are on the path for helping men serve as elders. You grow these men. And where there are homes in which the Bible is read and families pray together and moms and dads counsel their children in making Christ-like decisions as they grow up. You're watching the things at work that show the environment in which these men grow to be elders. Now let me... I have... uh, I'm living in Indiana... And Indiana is uh, famous for its sweet corn. Hoosiers are proud of their sweet corn and their tomatoes and their melons and their cantaloupe and a lot of other things. Well, a uh, hundred years ago, before you could can and freeze all this stuff, can or freeze this stuff, um, you could enjoy Indiana corn, for instance, if you planted it in the ground and watered it until the rain come and, and you waited. You waited, and it, it, it sprouted, and it grew, and you watched it, and then came time to harvest it, and you could enjoy Indiana sweet corn. I mean, now you can freeze it, and you can enjoy it all year round. But a hundred years ago, you planted it, and you waited. And the only way you could really enjoy the fruit of something like that, of what you plant, is just to be patient and let it grow. And is well worth the investment is well worth that. And I want to take you back 100 years ago and say, you know what, that's a whole lot like the way it is with elders. You keep praying like you've been praying during these last couple of days. Josh keeps preaching like Josh can preach. You all keep teaching like you all can teach and helping each other like you can help each other. Let this be an environment in which everybody is growing spiritually. Those who, are, who have the, the gift and the ability to serve in various ways and serve as elders, those men will will come up from among you. You'll see them coming a mile away. And you'll encourage them and help them to serve as elders. Elders grow. So, to begin to do that work right now, to learn to serve, learn to care for people, to love the world around us like Christ does, to be an example in this dark world for Christ, to teach others the word, talk to your spouse, talk to your children, teach and convert your children to, the, to Christ, and just go about this work of, of using the opportunities and the blessings that God has given you to the glory of Christ, and you are watching a man and his family and his children grow. And growing Christians are where you get elders. Every one of us uses our gifts and elders, deacons and saints who serve in every other way come about. Our concern tonight is for those who are lost to be saved.
And I, I know you've heard me talk about that from the standpoint of a, of a shepherd working with Christians to help them go to heaven. But here at the end of all of this, this, this desire for lost people to be saved is at the heart of everything. It is what makes this story good news. From the wrath of God against sin, we find deliverance through the, through the blood of Christ so that we can be born again into a new life with a hope that nobody can take away from us. And we want to, I want to appeal to you, if you've not yet become a Christian, to respond to this gospel, to this good news, to this Savior, by humbly obeying Him and laying all that you are and all that you have at the cross and stay right there the rest of your life and watch what God can do with you. If we can help you in any way to come to the Savior to begin your life or to continue life, your life in His service in the right way, let us know while we stand to sing this invitation song.